Welcome to the Gentleman Ultra Podcast. We bring nostalgia, history, and tales from both within and beyond Calcio's four white lines. This is Italian football through our eyes. This is the Gentleman Ultra. Buongiorno. Uh, we're back for our second ever episode of the Gentleman Ultra podcast. We've actually done the first, as you may know by now, and we feedback so we thought about doing a second we'll, we'll keep it going <laughs> as long as it stays like that we do appreciate all the feedback we got from the first episode uh, and hope that this one the follow-up one is just as popular so i'm joined today by a partnership that's as fruitful as Gianfranco zola and fastino Aspria. it's neil morris and luca hodges ramon how are you guys neil you good yeah good thanks just uh been enjoying the football this weekend um a, a couple of um Players have got four goals apiece, which is always nice to see. So um, Mo Salah yesterday and uh, and Icardi on the, on Sunday. So yeah, enjoying the football, and um, I'm sure you enjoyed that one as well, Richard. Well, like Mario Icardi four goals. I, I may have enjoyed that a little bit. Yeah, nice to see him. <laughs> <laughs> nice to see him with a bit of a return to form. Verona next. So let's just see how that goes uh, before we go into the derby, which I'm sure you'll be watching, Luca. <laughs> very much anticipating the derby um, yeah I was a bit shocked to see uh, you boys turn up today and so emphatically but yeah 5-0 at Stamp who have been so good at home this season is a very impressive return to form uh, looking forward to the Milan game <laughs> a little bit later um, but yeah apart from that I've been well was fortunate enough or unfortunate enough depending on which way you look at it to go to the uh, Arsenal Milan game on Thursday talking about um, victories <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't call it emphatic. I would call it ju- dubious in some in some circumstances. But no, it was um, yeah. I mean, it all it was a good game. Um, the, the, obviously, as a Milan fan, I'll reference the penalty which changed the game. But um, no, it was it was a good game. It was great to see uh, the Milanisti in fine voice. Uh, they were amazing the whole game. Um, that was incredible. I think the the way that the, the Milan. Yeah were before and after the game was just absolutely fantastic and you know when you look at some of the some of the English fans or not just in England but in all over the world a lot of teams that or clubs will get on get on the teams back I think that the Rossoneri were a real uh, symbol of how to support your team there. Yeah for sure for sure they were obviously throughout the 90 minutes very very vocal chanting throughout the game but also as you said at the end of the game 3-1 defeat at the Europa League could have perhaps I mean, it would have been unfair, I think, to turn on this Milan team after what they've been doing or, or even, you know, any sort of criticism. But it was just brilliant to see, you know, at the end of the game, the players go over to the fans, thank them. Some of them were chucking the shirts into the fans. I think Romagnoli, Bonucci maybe, yeah. gave, gave the shirts to the fans. I was on the other side, I was in the, so I didn't see who exactly gave their shirts. But, um, yeah, just such an impressive kind of consistent um level of support throughout the game and quite a, a humorous moment obviously when when the Milan fans were chanting oh Achi Milan mm. um, the Arsenal fans I think were actually quite inspired to be honest by the support that they'd seen um, the Milanisti give their, their players throughout the game uh, and there was quite a good atmosphere at the end because really it was it was there was a subdued atmosphere at times from the Arsenal fans but at the end I think they were inspired by the Milan fans and then Made it, made the song to their own and started singing about Ospina to the same tune. So it was, it was quite a nice moment actually at the end of the game. Yeah, it was. It was. It was good. I just think that 
hopefully, you know, when you see that sort of support, it, it does make you, I mean, it's a much bigger debate of whether they can get, whether it's standing back in, back in England. And, you know, I think that certain elements of the support, it'd be quite interesting to see if we are allowed some supporters over in the UK to, to support the teams like that. It'd be interesting to see. We've seen parts of it at Palace, but... Mm, well, it certainly works in Scotland, hasn't it, as well, I think. Yeah. Don't, um, and I think it's certainly, an, uh, it would be an interesting... Um, an interesting project. I think it needs to be done in, in, in some circumstances because a lot of the grounds now, there is a lack of atmosphere. Um, but yeah, I guess that's for another that's for another conversation or another debate. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get into today's show. But just before we do, I was talking to a friend of mine who I grew up watching Football Italia with. And um, he threw this question at me when we were just talking about this podcast last week and different other things. And uh, it's a bit of a who am I? So I'm going to just give you a couple of clues. Uh, and I want to see if you can guess this person, okay? <laughs> uh, you can have as many guesses as you want. <laughs> testing uh, our credentials here, Richard. Pardon? You're testing our credentials here. I took me a long... I, I Did you get it, it, Richard? Did you get it? I, I, I want to see if you guys get it, because I struggled. It's not the easiest. So Okay. okay. So, off we go. So, this guy is Brazilian, okay? And he played for Palmer. He played for Palmer on two occasions, in 1990 to 93, and came back again in 2001 to 2003. Any guesses so far? Ooh. Um, first name? No. <laughs> okay, okay, no problems. <laughs> He's a World Cup winner. The first name that came to mind was... Claudio Taffarel, but I don't think did he play for I don't think he played for Palmer. I can't believe it that you got that. You didn't even let me do my the clues. That's it. What's <laughs> on? I don't know. First <laughs> That's great. And then I started to doubt myself that he even played for Palmer. And oh my god, I'm gonna look like an idiot. So name. Reggiana has gone 93 94. Can't believe he made that move. I my friend was just asking me about this because he's um, big, big fan of um, Italian football as well. Um, we're just, we're just going through it. There must be so many players, so many um, over underrated players that you just forget. I mean, we do this all the time, going back in like when culture rules the world and different things. And you look back at some of these players that played in Serie A, and it just shows the strength of the league at that time. That even with Tafarel in that first season, uh, he played in the first season when Palmer uh, went back up into Serie A, but then he got displaced the season afterwards. And, you know, this guy's ended up in Reggiana. And yeah. you think about that, 93, 94, he's at Reggiana. Then the next thing, he's playing in a World Cup final and, win, you know, winning it with yeah. Brazil mm. in that famous penalty shootout. Yeah. yeah. It's just incredible. Absolutely incredible. Because he was such a good goalkeeper. And when you think back now about the level of competition he had at that time, I, did, I, was, I was quite amazed. Like, you know, it's one of those names that just you forget that, that obviously, you know, he played there. But fantastic goalkeeper and... I mean, what do you guys think? I mean, do you think he should play it? What was he doing at Reggiana at that time? <laughs> um, no, I think, like you said, Richard, it, it kind of underlines the strength and depth that Serie A had at that point. I mean, <clears throat> also, if you look look around, I guess at the during the time when he went to Parma in the early 90s, you had a lot of top-class keepers um, playing at the, at the bigger sides as well. So the kind of, as we touched upon last week I think it was these provincial clubs were able to pick up big names big stars um, because of the pull of the league and because of the fact that 
you know, the, the, the very top clubs were picking up, you know, your Van Bastens, your Hullets, your German trios at Inter, um, your Maradonas at Napoli, whoever, whoever you want to kind of use the example of the major stars. But the, the, the provincial clubs were also able to, to bring in um, very good players, you know, as we spoke about it as well with the English players moving to Italy, David yeah. Platt to after the World Cup. There's Walker to Sampdoria. I mean, obviously Sampdoria had won the Scudetto um, in the, in just recently. So that, that I suppose they had that kind of power, pulling power. But yeah, I guess, it, as you say, it underlines the, the strength of the league. Yeah, That's exactly. It. Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, Italy's had that over the years. Or Serie A's had that. Um, you know, it was, it was the same back in... Um, you know, we're going we're gonna to talk about an article later, which uh, looks at the 50s and 60s. And it was the same then when the pulling power of the league was so strong, um, you know, that there was better money, better conditions. You know, back when the stadiums were considered better and, and the league had that pulling power. And, you know, that, that did fade again for a while. But definitely and after Italian 90 and, uh, you know, the late 80s and the AC Milan team, I think the, the, the lure of Serie A just got really, really strong again. And I think players were willing to go to, you know, wherever they could just, right. just to get in the league at the time. And, you know, it may, may not seem, you know, today that attractive to go and play for Reggiana, but uh, at the time, yeah, you know, being able to go to Italy and play was, you know, a, a real ambition for a lot of players. Yeah, absolutely. I think when you look back and people like Haji, was it Brescia, Florian Radicioi, there's all these players that within the, you know, whether it's 90 World Cup, 94 World Cup, you know, really hit the ground running and really put themselves into the world stage at that point. And, like I said, it just it just is amazing that the, the pull of the league at the time. I think, like we were saying before, you know, just looking back, and there's probably so many more that I was just surprised at because we go and we, you know, obviously, like I said before, and we'll talk about it with the alternative guide later. We always look back at these players, whether it's a Thomas Scaravi at Genoa, for instance, you know, Branco at Genoa, people like that. But then there's so many just miss. But this was, I always like the story with this one as well, that with uh, Tafarel, when he went back to his second uh, spell at Parma, he's 37 years old and he gets offered to go and sign a car with Empoli, a, um, a contract with Empoli. And on the way there, his car breaks down and he just goes, no, that's a sign from God. That's me done. That's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> I don't know if that's laziness. Or just, uh, the, the car journey on the way to Empoli, he was just thinking, no, it's not, not going to be enough. <laughs> too, much, too much time to think. Yeah, more than likely. Okay, well, well done on that, Luke, for getting that one. That was a cracking effort. So just um, moving on, I mean, you touched on it there, Neil. I think one of the things, like when we were just talking there, that this there are players who take that chance and will go out to to Italy. Um, you know, I mean, we're, we're used to it now. We're used to the tra- foreign players, whether it's in England, Italy, Spain, wherever it is. You know, it's happening more and more. Um, you know, we're probably less used to the fact of English players actually going abroad, although we have seen some movements with um, some younger players now over in academies at Barcelona. The young lad from Arsenal just gone over and also like a Dortmund. So we see a bit more movement from that. I think it's something that will probably pick up in the future as well. But going back, like you say, to the, to the, to the 50s, 60s, it probably was a little bit more rare. And when we go back and we look at um, English players or British players um, any, from anywhere, whether I know your your, your relevance. Uh, your player is South African. You're going to talk about, but it was very rare for them to go out and make that transition. And I think when we look back at stories like when we go really far back, like William Garbutt and people like that, it's you know it's seen as trailblazers. But again, the 50s, the 60s, it wasn't that common. And yet, Neil, you wrote a great story about a gentleman called Eddie Fremani. And uh, just do you want to just talk a bit about this? Because I think it's a great story. 
Yeah, yeah, no problem at all. Um, I mean, to begin with, I'll just uh, uh, a quick, quick bit of background to how I, you know, came about writing this kind of stories um, and got interested in players from that era. I mean, it's due to my my dad, really. Uh, he, he, I discovered a bit later in life that he was a bit of a football hipster. I never knew when I was younger. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he had this fascination with foreign players back in the 50s and 60s. And uh, I always remember when... Um, when I used to play football with him in the park, um, he used to come running at me with the ball and um, he used to always shout at me, come on, Trapatoni, come on, Trapatoni. And um, I just, I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. And, you know, it went on. I was, I was you know, tiny at the time, you know, and invariably he'd, uh, you know, do a couple of step overs and, and go past me and then whack the ball in the goal. <laughs> just, <laughs> just destroyed you, basically. Yeah, yes. yeah that's it. Destroyed my confidence totally as a player. Um, <laughs> and then we need to um, talk about this, Neil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fine. I just need to get it off my chest. And then, uh, you know, he used, to, he used to whack the ball in the back of the net and, uh, and, and scream Eusebio. And again, I didn't know what he was, he was talking about. Um, and, and and the Trapatoni thing, I mean, he, he said it to me so often that I became convinced, because my dad was a, a West Ham fan, I became convinced that there must be a player at West Ham called Tony, whose nickname was Trapper, because he was really good at <laughs> trapping the ball. And I thought, oh, this this must be what Trapatoni is. Um, this is some, some West Ham player. Of course, at the time, you know, and I didn't realise, but years later, it suddenly occurred to me that, you know, all those times playing in the park with my dad, he was um, basically... Uh, reenacting the 1963 European Cup final um, and he was Eusebio I was Trapatoni and uh, you know, Eusebio scored and of course that that game took place at Wembley so you know it would have been you know relevant at the time and got a lot of uh, interest and um, so so that that's how I started to become aware of these players a bit later on I, I discovered my dad had all these old football annuals and he also when he was a, a teenager he used to uh, send off clippings and stuff and get autographs of players. And, you know, later on, I just discovered that he had this collection of all these old clippings and stuff with, you know, autographs and players going way back all through the 50s and 60s. Um, whole teams in some case, cases, you know, and lots of players like Brian Clough and Terry Venables. And it, you know, just I started looking at all these old photos and seeing these, you know, foreign players as well. And it really, really got my interest. Um, and of course, that European Cup final in 1963 as well was, you know, AC Milan won uh, in the end. Um, and Jose Altafini scored both the goals. And uh, he's the guy that later in his career as a commentator gave us the phrase Golazzo when he was commentating in it, Italy. So, you know, that, that sort of links into the whole Football Italia thing as well. Um, but um, the Eddie Fermani story, I mean, uh, I remember reading about that many years ago. He, along with John Charles, you know, those two were sort of considered some of the trailblazers at the time of players going over to Italy. Um, but there had been some before them, but they were like the, the real big names. And that that just really interested me, that story, because uh, it covers a time when perhaps English football, you know, the players weren't treated that great. Um, you know, they didn't get a signing on fee. They weren't paid very well. And uh, at the time in Italy, you know, the, the the basic wage was very similar. I think it was about fifteen pound a week. But a, a player that went to Italy would get a thirty six pound win bonus, and you know, even a draw bonus, and and they and and they got a cut of the signing on fee. Um, and I think uh, Eddie Fermani, you know, he was uh, inspired by Hans Jepsen, who'd gone over and made an absolute fortune in signing on fees and become the world's most expensive player. 
and they used to play together at Charlton. And um, he went over there. And, and like many players at the time that went there, they uh, really, you know, he embraced the culture, embraced everything. He, he, he used to get mistaken for an Italian. I mean, obviously he had Italian roots, but uh, he learned to you know, speak the language and uh, he dressed appropriately. And, and he, you know, many that went there at that time really, really embraced it. Um, not, not all did. You know, some went, did a year and came back because they didn't like it. Um, but others, you know, really, really embraced it. And um, during that sort of 20-year period, I suppose, quite a few players went over there for the money, for the lifestyle. I mean, the Italian stadiums at the time were considered, you know, not like, unlike today where they're considered a bit, you know, run down and dilapidated. At the time, they were considered, you know, some of the best facilities in the world. The players could have everything they wanted. They just had to, you know, pick up the phone and everything was there and available for them. So it was, you know, really attractive at the time. And it wasn't until... You know, later that the um, the English league decided to stop, you know, paying players properly. Um, obviously, Jimmy Hill was a big influence in getting uh, removing the maximum wage and that kind of thing. And then, and then suddenly the uh, the exodus of players stopped. And I think um, Jerry Hitchens was probably the last one at that time. Uh, he'd gone over from, from mm. Villa to Inter. Um, I think he. You know, Unfortunately, he's sadly no longer with us, but uh, he finished up at Calgary. Um, and I remember a quote, um, at, there was a British um, journalist who, and this probably exemplifies the, the view of you know foreign countries at the time, and uh, um, he was asked by a British journalist, didn't he fear for his um, family's life um, living in the <laughs> bandit-infested island of Sardinia? <laughs> <laughs> And very, very, very eloquent, eloquently, he replied that um, the the one armed bandits in Britain's uh, you know arcades take more money off people in six months than than the bandits in Sardinia do in a lifetime. And he you know, very eloquently uh, responded to that to that question. Um, and and talking of players that um, you know sort of embraced the lifestyle and stuff, there was another player called uh, Paddy Sloan who used to play for Arsenal, I believe, and um, and Sheffield United. And he went over to Brescia and played for a bit. And again, he became a real sharp dresser, a lover of Italian fashion, learned the language, dressed really well. And there was a story that when he returned to the UK and stopped playing, uh, he uh, basically was looking for a job. And uh, he went to an engineering plant to, to ask if they had any jobs in the workshop. And he was so impeccably dressed that he ended up being wined and dined by the directors in in their private suites because they they thought he was somebody really important, and that you know that, that that's another example of a player that uh, you know went to Italy and came back you know very changed in terms of culture and stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, the Eddie Fermani story I just really enjoyed researching it and writing it. Um, you know, he had a great career after that as well in in management. Uh, I think he still lives in the states. With, um, so he spent a, a while over there, you know, in charge of, uh, I think, the New York Cosmos and, you know, other teams. So, yeah, a great story and something that really appeals to me in, in you know, in, in my uh, sort of love of uh, of that era of the game. Yeah, it's, it's a brilliant story. It's brilliantly written. And it, but what it reminds me of as well is when you think about it, um, I don't know if you got this thought when, um, when writing it, but Samp formed in 1946, if I'm not mistaken. So still a relatively new team. You know, and he's gone over there not that long yeah. after. It's for the big money. It's got that sort of image of like when you imagine players now going over to Paris Saint Germain. You know, it's that sort of that's that sort of equivalent 
Uh, that must have been that same sort of excitement. But again, you know, like you're saying, there's not that many players that did it at that time. So, uh, and especially, you know, the world's a smaller place now. It would have been a more, uh, it would have been a braver move. Certainly a braver move. Um, but like yeah, you said, yeah, I just looked down when you talked about, uh, I've never heard about Paddy Sloan before. And straight away, you look now and just a quick look on Wikipedia and uh, this guy's Milan, Torino, Udinese and Brescia. It's yeah, these yeah. stories that I really <laughs> like because I haven't got a clue about this guy. And you just think, I suppose, perhaps it's because I think that maybe more, and this is only my personal view, is that more English players should actually go and experience uh, different cultures, different leagues, actually learn to, to to grow up a little better, you know, where they have to go out there and they have to learn to cook. They have to learn to stand on their own two feet. They're not having everything done in the academies. And and I think that we've got such a talented generation of players now that that yeah. would influence the, I think it would help the national team, it would do a lot, a lot for them. And also not just about thinking of, you know, I, I don't even agree with the idea that, oh yeah, they should go out to, to wherever it is, whether it's Dortmund or into France, into Spain, into Italy, and then come back. It's just about playing in a different culture, in a different league. And, um, you know, we're, we're sort of um, often, we, we get to look at so many fantastic foreign players c- coming into the country. Uh, we get to see that a lot in Italy as well, of course, but it would be good to yeah. export a product as well, in a sense. But these guys who did it back then, I think it's, um, it, it really is a story because, you know, the, you just look how many, um, I don't know, you know, it, it's so easy that when we look back and we can see cult heroes in our own game or for, for our own clubs, but there's so many, um, I think especially probably, you know, after after the war as well, who decided to make that move. And um, yeah, that's why I thought it was just such a fascinating story. Yeah, yeah. funnily enough, that kind of story is, is almost come full circle now. The, um, the I guess, debate about players moving abroad and, and how beneficial that is. Because now we would say that if an English player were to move to Italy now, especially a young English player, we would probably again commend them for, for their bravery, is probably the wrong word, but for taking on a new challenge, um, wanting to learn a new football culture, wanting to experience a different way of training, a different way of living. I mean, the, the first example that comes to mind here is Chalaba. Mm. Went to Napoli for a season on loan and speaks so positively about his time at Napoli. Yeah. In terms of the different, not just in terms of training and how it improves him as an actual player, because, of course, <clears throat> training um, with Napoli, it would improve any player, I'm sure, um, yeah. with the current football that they play but also in terms of his maturity, learning a new language, getting used to a new culture. Um, Naples, obviously, is a city that is very immersive. You know, it's very um, in your face, if you like. And it's very, he was talking about, you know, he couldn't step foot outside without people wanting to have a picture with him. Or so, so even mm. that sense of trying to just become a more mature player and deal with the different kind of circumstances and taking yeah. oneself out of their comfort zone is is um, something that we would commend now. And so these guys did it back then. Um, yeah. Obviously, the money was a big factor. Now the other way around, I suppose, is the Premier League pulls people in because of the money, um, whereas Italy hasn't got that that pulling power anymore, Not none, neither does, do the German, Spanish or French leagues compared to the Premier League. Um, but there's still a lot to be gained by moving abroad, and I think, and I agree with you, you, you Richard, that more players should look to do it, really. Um, if, if the opportunity, if it's right for them and if the opportunity does arise. Yeah, and I think uh, that, that's true. And I think that with the cultural thing, it, it does depend a lot on the player as well because, you know, there are, 
I think with the Eddie Flamani story, when he went out there, you know, the first thing that struck him was the training methods were so different. And, um, you know, they, the, the players are doing stuff that, you know, resemble, you know, the ballet and yoga and stuff like that, which at the time, obviously, in, in, in England would have just been completely frowned upon and uh, seen as, you know, you know, just completely, uh, you know, unnecessary. Um, but, you know, some players go over, they, they, they encounter these different training methods and a different way of doing things and, and it completely, you know, they just don't click with it. So they come back and then do things the way they've always been used to, while others, you know, they go there and they think, hold on, well, no, I'm I'm open, I'll give this a try. And um, and, and players like that, that, that did embrace it. And Eddie Fumani was, Fumani was a, a good example. You know, he, he really improved as a player because of it. You know, he became fitter and... Uh, better you know technically and uh, you know, and like you say you know even if it's just for a year players can there are players that will say that how much that benefited them as a player just having mm-hmm. that different experience while others completely just almost reject it before the off and 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 you know so it's down to the player as well at the end of the day and I think um and also you know the attitude of the game in general in in a particular country I mean sometimes you know in England you might a player might go abroad or or be seen as you know wasted in that league or whatever because it's not as good as the Premier League or whatever and it's just changing that mindset as well of saying no you know if you want to develop um you've got to look as at football as as the game as a whole not just as you know English football Spanish football you just got to look at it as football and if there's yeah. an opportunity to go to play for a club um you know where you can develop where you can train with a certain coach that you know you're gonna gonna gel with then then players should take it and you know not be influenced by just what league it is or you know what country it is it's more about you know the personal development of the player and um so many you know players in in because you know, i obviously being based in spain I, I, I watch a lot of spanish football and you know they don't think twice about you know going elsewhere to to learn this to learn their craft and uh, i think uh yeah a lot of uh players in England could probably learn a lot from that so yeah I agree I think so it's like um these two examples there in one one when you listen to Patrick Sever talk about the difference in the training methods when he was over in I'm not saying that you know he'll have learned a lot over in the UK as well that will have benefited yeah. that he didn't learn in Italy so it goes all the way around but I always remember him saying that it was very free um over in the UK and when he's playing at fullback you're very much based on what your uh your winger or the man in front of you is doing and you're very much based you know, on a, and you're quite free. You can, you know, as long as you've got that understanding with that player, you can overlap and you can almost decide as long as it's within the coach's instructions to to play as you want. Where in mm. Juventus, in Italy, you know, they, they're playing in grids. You are in this grid and when the ball is there, you do this. Yeah. And I remember watching Inter train and the Mancini and, you know, they've had all the metal, you know, when they take free kicks and they've got those metal, uh, what do you call them? Hannikins. <laughs> Mannequins. mannequins, yeah, and, and and basically they've got eleven mannequins in, and they've got the <laughs> all these people just going, okay, the ball's here, moving all the mannequins. Right, where do you guys go? We all go mm-hmm. here. And there's no ball. Yeah, sure. that yeah. And you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. Some players might be completely bored with that, but at the end of the day, it, it's about anything. It's just how you develop and and how you then take that, and and you know, you're always going to take something away from that. So it's. You know, when you do get examples, and I use Jack Wilshire as one when I think the season before we went to Bournemouth and there was links of him going to Italy, if not, if I'm not mistaken. I think Sampdoria is probably one of the, funnily enough, one of the main main links there and, you know, obviously chose to stay with, with Bournemouth. Now, you know, you just wonder, when, especially when what he could have learned out there and how he could have developed as a player. But, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting interesting story, uh, the one about Fermani. And, and obviously, as, you can, as we can tell, it brings up a bit of debate 
but we're going to move a little bit swiftly on because what we also want to touch base on is uh, obviously we, we like to talk about the articles that are on the site, but we also like to talk about the series and how things started as well. And obviously being called uh, the Gentleman Ultra, the whole site was developed originally because of, you know, in that same sort of experience about watching football in England and then transferring that to watching football in Italy is a very, very, very different beast altogether, um, especially the more you explore it. Um, and so quite a while ago, uh, Luca and myself developed uh, the alternative guide to Italian football, which looked at various different facets of it. And so I'm just going to pass over to Luca because it's one of the series that started us off with The Guardian that we're quite proud of and that we want to be really looking at um, in, in, in the coming weeks. And if anyone's not always new to the site um, you know, and, and, and wants to get a, an overall idea about what we're about, I'd, I'd certainly push them towards those pieces. So, Luca, do you want to just expand on that a little bit more about you know, why we did it and, and obviously where we started off? Yeah, sure. Um, I think it really <clears throat> captures what our site's about, actually, the alternative guide. Um, I remember you coming to me with the idea, as you said, quite a few years ago now, after you'd seen one of my pieces on, I think it was kind of rivalries between Italian fans and mm. how that reflects kind of Italian identity and, and culture and rivalries between the cities. Um, and yeah, you said to me, look, I'm thinking of doing this alternative club guide where I cover the stadiums. I also want to cover the fans of those, that, those clubs, so the ultras and the, and the supporters clubs, as well as the classic player from, from kind of Football Italia era or a nostalgic player, um, which is also what the site's all about. Um, so, yeah, it struck me as a really good idea. You know, here was a, here was a, a chance to explore the less uh, well-known aspects of football clubs in Italy, um, also the controversial aspects, because as I think you described it on the site, Richard, the ultras are part of this kind of mystical dark underbelly. It's not always dark, but it's certain, certain, there's definitely a certain mystique to the ultras, um, which in this country tend to get immediately associated with hooligans. Um, and there are obviously hooligan elements to their behaviours, as we've docu well documented in this series. Um, but they're also so much more than that in terms of their influence on the peninsula, um, their importance to the clubs and, and to Italian football in general. You know, um, so many people who've written for the site and ourselves included who have been to matches in Italy one of the one of the reasons that we fell in love with Italian football is because of the spectacle. Forget about what happens on the field, which often is of an unbelievable quality as well. But the spectacle and the stands is is unique. You know, the smoke, the flares, um, the chants, the flags, um, the choreographies it, it is art. Um, and so this is what we wanted to capture in this in this series. And so we started alphabetically. We started from. Atalanta at the time and we went through the Serie A clubs and you can find all these pieces um, on the website under the guide it's just kind of under the menu bar the guide and I think actually there's a few more that we have that we'd written and have gone up on the guide and that we can still we, we will still add to the site and um, so we, we covered over I think about 30 clubs in the end um, doing these alternative guides and Richard wrote the stadium pieces, the pieces on the stadium and the classic player and I wrote the ultras. And the fascinating thing about writing the ultras pieces were there were obviously some recurrent themes, um, recurrent themes being that there's normally a political element to these ultras. Um, not always, some are, some try to remain apolitical, but 
often because of Italy's political history, especially um, during the kind of the anni di Piombo or the, the kind of uprest, the, the upheaval in the 70s and 80s between the Red Brigades and the Black Shirts, the fascists and the communists. Um, these found its way into the stadium, you know, kind of Italian football being a reflection often of Italian society. Um, so that's one of the recurrent themes. The other one is that there's so many of these groups within just within one club. So Richard, you'll know from seeing on the Curva Nord that the Curva Nord is not just one autonomous whole. Yeah. You've got, you know, sometimes 50, 60 different groups of ultras, some as small as kind of 10 kids who've just formed their own little um, brigade and some as big as, uh, you know, as hundreds some who try and unite the whole Cordova and some who actually come to blows and there's factional infighting. The kids are the most dangerous most of the time. Yeah, that's the most dangerous. I think famously there was really bad infighting in the in the Juve Ultras and there's been cases in other ultra groups. So um, this is a very, I almost kind of think in one of the pieces I, I likened it to Italian politics where you have Italian political parties forming and, and disbanding at a kind of dizzying rate it's also the same as, as ultra groups um so yeah we did this piece not to try and glorify what they, what they do because i think we got accused of that a couple of times in the guardian but just to try and present an accurate picture of what these groups stand for here are their dark sides here are the positive elements you make your own judgments on what you think of ultra culture but what i think is undisputable is that italian football a part of italian football would die if you tried to and and at times the Italian state has tried to kind of completely crush this this movement and and you simply can't have the same spectacle without without the ultras um, mm. and so yeah that that's what the series is all about it, it's been an absolute pleasure to write these pieces I've been lucky enough to do interviews with some of these ultra groups I remember one in particular that was brilliant was with the Udinese ultras who were, who were great and, and were really open and speaking to me. Another one with Carpi, um, spoke to a Roma Ultra. So th these, it was a really good experience. But I think we want to tell one story in particular, which is almost what helped the site grow as it has, in a way, and, and gain more exposure for it, for good and for bad, was our first piece on Atalanta, um, who are, in terms of the Ultra movement, quite a significant club. Their Ultras are quite well, kind of, I guess, thought of in Italy because of their passionate fan base. Um, they're a provincial club, but they have a very significant following. Um, their kind of capo ultra, the leader, is quite revered or feared, if you like, in Italy. Um, I think he's nicknamed Il Boccia, um, which in Veneto Dutch translates as, as kind of boy, ragazzo, boy, but I'm not sure if it's the same in, in Lombardian. But... Um, so I wrote this piece about their ultras and I opened the piece actually with a, with a quite incredible story about uh, one year at the Festa della Dea, the Festa of the Party of the Goddess, if you like, the celebration festival of the Goddess, which in which the whole community as, uh, of Atalanta comes together um, to celebrate the club, ultras, players, fans, families, um, all come together in the, in the centre of Bergamo uh, to celebrate Atalanta um, and it's a real kind of community, community communal feel anyway this particular year they had don't ask me how managed to get hold of a tank an armoured vehicle um, and they drove this through the city centre uh, they had Giulio Migliaccio their new signing 
up on this tank with a couple of the sort of kind of capoultras, and they had prepared a couple of rusty, beaten up cars and painted them in the colours of Roma and Brescia, their fiercest rivals. Um, Brescia because it's a, a local derby, and Roma because of a, a sorry, a sad incident in which I think three Atalantini were, were stabbed in Rome. Um, so, and they proceeded to run over these cars with a tank. <laughs> so, you know, you can't really ever picture anything like this happening in the UK. It wouldn't ever happen in the UK. It's, it is one of those stories which you, it, it's hard to believe actually happened, but that is part of the ultra culture. I think another one is, you know, Richard, you might be able to say more about this, but the Interfans who stole that scooter and chucked it down the ground. Yeah, if you it wasn't actually that wasn't actually again that wasn't an ultra group that uh, ended up doing that. That was um, some again. We talk about small breakaway elements. Some kids acting as an ultra group and uh, stole <laughs> um, a scooter in a game against Atalanta and well, didn't even. I was going to say they dismantled it, but they didn't. They just uh, threw it off uh, the corner of North, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is a statement in itself. But if you talk to, I know uh, one or two of the guys on the corner of Northern. They're very, very quick to separate themselves from that story. Uh, how true that is, I'm not saying, but they, they very much say that it was uh, uh, a couple of a group of kids acting alone. But even so, listen, you know, to get anything into San, San Siro, I mean, it's, the tickets hardly ever work in the gates anyway. So how they get those things through is always incredible because they don't go through the main gates. So it's an interesting story. But yeah, it's um, Atalanta, like you say, certainly. Um, um, a volatile, volatile group, and uh, we well, we found that out, didn't we, Luca? It was, uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we found that out quite in quite, I guess. Um, well, we were very surprised, uh, a spectacular fashion as well. Uh, the thing to say about Atalanta Ultras is an amazing supporters group in terms of the support yeah. they offer for their club. Um, traditionally left wing, but unfortunately, I think recently they've become kind of, I guess, they have been smeared by some uh, race, racist incidents uh, recently. I can remember uh, against Milan, for example, Kevin Constant, I think, was racially abused there. But, um, yeah, back to this story, I think, which, Richard, you can you can kind of jump <laughs> on to because it was quite incredible. But the, the piece made quite a stir. Our article made quite a stir in, in Bergamo itself and was picked up by the local media, and I'll let you take it. I just think... I just think with Italian football, just you've all gone on to it. The one of the reasons, and this all came about as well for me, was because I've been going, you know, to Italy to watch football for over twelve years now, and you know, going on with the ultras is an experience. And and I think when you write, we were writing these pieces. It's just if anyone was going over to watch football there, it gives you a bit of a heads up about now there are really good things that go on, but there are really crazy things, and not just not a podcast long enough for all the different stories that we've probably got about going out there you know from even the last time I went to watch into Sampdoria for instance you know I had a, one of the members of the Curva Nord suddenly down to the dressing rooms to meet Javier Zanetti it's things like that that just go above and beyond but this is still one of the craziest ones because you know we weren't even in Italy at the time and we've written this piece obviously on Atalanta and at the time there was uh, a gentleman who called Tim Dole who started the site called Football Italiano um, I used to write back way back when, and he, he, he messaged me going, Atalanta, Atalanta piece has caused a bit of a stir. And now this is like the second thing we'd ever have on the garden. So straight away, you just go, oh, no, what's gone wrong? What have we done? And, uh, <laughs> you know, what's, is there an error on it or something? 
And um, it turned out sent a link, got sent a link to this piece. Um, now, at the time, Bergamo was going for the city of culture. So obviously trying to, you know, really promote itself within. And then our article's gone up on The Guardian about the ultras. So a journalist, and correct me if I miss anything here, Luca, but from what I remember, a journalist, a local journalist has got hold of this. Yeah, from the Echo di Bergamo, I think it was. Yes, that's, that's, that was it. And decided to write a piece um, basically having a go, saying, you know, that we were ruining the image of Bergamo, the Guardian newspaper. So he's blaming the Guardian for it, which is great. You're thinking, we're only on the sports network, so this is not really particularly good. Uh, we're, we're ruining the image of Bergamo. Uh, we've, we've completely, uh, they don't need this sort of press. Why has it happened? Blah, 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 blah. And then interestingly, uh, if that wasn't it, I mean, that would have been fine because you could have taken that on the chin. But in the comments section below, it just carried on and on and on. And this sort of huge argument ensued where certain members, what seemed like at the time of uh, Atalanta fans, who are obviously, you know, members of various ultra groups, have actually said, well, no, hold on a minute. That's an absolutely, completely true representation of, of, of what Italian football is, of what we do. Uh, it might be a bit warts and all, but that's it. And it, it carried on. And, and, and bizarrely, then, the Atalanta Ultras really sort of took our side on this. Um, it's quite a level and really were perturbed about this journalist and uh, Lecco, the, 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 the paper. And next thing, so that, that, that was all it was, uh, we thought first. And Sylvie played Calgary. And this was the most bizarre thing ever because I think we've still got it on the side, a picture of this. But next thing, when, <laughs> in the next game against Calgary, all of a sudden they unleashed, not the biggest, but it still was a banner. Um, saying, Lecco, do you speak English? <laughs> Criticising the paper for not understanding the article that we'd written. And you're yeah. just thinking, hold on a minute, what, why is this even happening? Why? Okay, so, I mean, obviously, you know, it's fantastic in some respects because it's, you know, the articles are getting a lot more publicity, but you're thinking, well, why have they even bothered doing this? You know, we're not even that first. Um, but they took it that far, and this banner goes up. So again, you're thinking, surely that's the end of it. Well, no, because then I get sent a link uh, by the same guy who, who's now wanting to interview me about this article, uh, this uh, Tim Dole, saying, look, have you seen it? And it's a video clip. And you saw this, didn't you, Luca, when it was a local news? Yeah, the mayor of Bergamo, wasn't it? Yeah, the mayor of Bergamo's now got hold of this situation because there's obviously a war going on between the press and the ultras. And we, this is something, let's just get this clear. Uh, the, the press in Bergamo and the ultras have a massive, massive history. We accidentally poured a little bit of water on an already raging fire. But this, so this goes off. And the mayor of Bergamo goes, I can't remember what his opinion was, was on it. Um, but anyway, I think he was just trying to um, get the situation under control, to be honest. And yeah. And bring the two sides to um to some sort of <laughs> just to calm it down just to calm it down but yeah it was um i think there was an issue with the translation of the article i mean that the article in the echo di bergamo had, had taken chunks very selectively mm. from our article, which in particular about the ultras portrayed things in a more negative light um so in terms of you know riots that had happened in the past between atalanta and brescia i think there's a story um, you know, talking about Ilbocha, who's got a very checkered history, the, the, the leader of this Atalanta Ultras group. And the, the point of the, the Echo di Bergamo was why are they focusing on these negative aspects of the club instead yeah. of our 
country, they'd completely misunderstood the purpose of the article was an alternative guide. It yes. wasn't going through the history of Atalanta and talking about every trophy they'd won, um, etc., all their, their best players. And there were positive elements in terms of talking about how, you know, the ultras bring the community together with these kind of festivals. They, they do go out and try and do good in the community, especially mm-hmm. because there is that fierce sense of local pride or campanilismo in Italian. So they very selectively picked negative, negative parts of the article to, to, to basically, as the ultras pointed out, to make a story uh, and, and create a narrative. <laughs> definitely took issue with this, as Richard said. There's a massive history, uh, not just in, in Bergamo, but also across Italy with the press and the ultras' uh, ongoing battles. So, yeah, it just fanned, fanned the flames, I think. My favourite part of that, it when he made the national, after that, he made the national news. And I think he came back to the mayor of Bergamo for a second interview. I can't remember who it was, if it was him or not. But whoever it was, it was just brilliant because I remember they asked him, you know, all this situation, and this guy's just looking at the camera really confused and he sort of goes why is this even news <laughs> it's just like right now it can finish i can finish but yeah it was uh it's an interesting one but i think part of that fascination is just obviously you know how the italians are, are so passionate when it comes to football clubs comes to the city the connection between the two and uh and that's it but yeah so many more crazy stories but to kick off the the alternative guide i don't well we've not had any anything go as uh anything like that since I know that no, the only other one that was bad was I remember the the Inter one we had to get that actually <laughs> checked by the Curva Nord before we could publish it but other than that it was uh, fairly tame after that yeah yeah I think we were kind of fearing the worst after that that oh my god every piece we we release is going to be an absolute fallout after it but yeah, yeah I was nervous yeah. about doing Palermo but <laughs> 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 But no, um, cool. Right, well, we're going to wrap things up soon, but what we've added to this is just um, a couple of a new, new little section at the end where we just wanted to see if anyone who's listened to the first podcast has got any questions for us. Um, and I think, Luca, on our Twitter, we have, I think we've had at least one response. Was that you, Neil? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we had a couple, a couple of really good responses. Um, one, one, two-part question that I think we should pick up on, uh, in particular, is from Wayne Edge um, at Oasis One Seven One One, and he just asked which stadium gives the best atmosphere that any of you have been to, and aside of Buffon and Zoff, who's the best keeper to grace the sticks in Serie A? So. Very, very good questions and questions that could take up a whole pod, as we said. But I think maybe we can just say a couple of bits on on those two questions in the last five minutes or so. Do you want to take that one, Neil? Yeah, no problem at all. Um, In terms of um, the atmosphere, I mean, I I don't quite have the uh, stadium hopping experience of you guys in Italy. Um, I've been to plenty of stadiums all over Europe, but um, quite often the bigger ones and I I find them, you know, sometimes lacking when it comes to uh, the atmosphere. But in, in terms of um, games that I've been to involving Italian teams, um, the, the one that had the best atmosphere was actually um, um, at Anfield in 2002, um, going back some time now. But I was lucky enough to um, get given a ticket to the uh, Liverpool-Rome uh, uh, Champions League game. Um, I 
think it was when they still had the um, two group stages. Um, so after Christmas, you went into a second group stage. And, um, you know, it, it, um, it, I think Liverpool needed to, to, to win by two goals to, to progress to the knockout stages. And, um, and that would have come at Roma's expense. Um, so th- that game, just the atmosphere that night was incredible. Um, um, it, it, two great teams on the pitch. I mean, you had Totti and Battistuta and Panucci on, on the Roma side. And um, I was with a, a couple of guys that gave me the ticket to that game. And we happened to be stood on the cop and um, it, just the, the intense noise. I think it was a, the first game that um, Gerard Houllier came back as well after he'd been ill. Um, so there was a, 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 a you know really good response there, but um, just just the intense noise from the from the very first whistle, and you could tell that it really really you know it just destroyed Roma. They just didn't perform on the night, and, um, and Liverpool got the two goals they needed. And you know I just remember getting carried across the the, the terraces, you know, <laughs> by uh, <laughs> you know, just. When, when the final, when the second goal went in, you know, just complete strangers just grabbing you and stuff like that, and the, you know, the Liverpool fans obviously have got a bit of a reputation for being, uh, um, you know, having good atmosphere on European nights, and um, experiencing that in the heart of the cop in a game like that was quite something. So, as it, you know, from an Italian point of view, it wasn't the best night, but from an atmosphere point of view, um, you know, I've been to you know loads and loads and loads of games since, and I've never quite experienced that kind of atmosphere again. It's a classic tie, that one, isn't it? The the Roma Liverpool one, and that's that Roma team as well. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. The Capello's Capello's team, wasn't it? And um, yeah, I mean, Liverpool had you know Yari Littman. Littman was playing at the time. I think he got one of the goals, and um, uh, I think Emil Heskey scored the scored the, the crucial <laughs> second goal. Um, you know, not a play you think of as one of the greats, but um, you know, really, really. Um, put in a, a really good shift that night and, and got the crucial goal. And yeah, it was a, just, you know, a really good side, but um, Roma just, you know, they just didn't, didn't perform on the night. And, uh, but as, in terms of atmospheres, that it was, you know, something pretty special that night. I think that as well, the, the Liverpool link there is not, in terms of Italian football, um, it's quite significant. Uh, if you think of the games that Liverpool played against Italian clubs in the past, but also how, the fan groups have influenced each other. So I know there was a very famous game between Genoa and Liverpool in the UEFA Cup in the no, late no, no, the UEFA Cup one was, uh, was that not 92? When, um, 90, yes. Yeah. 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 When, and, and, it, and you had this, the rendition of You Never Walk Alone. Yeah. Uh, and I think the Genoa fans and Liverpool fans all sung. And the, the Liverpool fans were equally kind of impressed by the, the level of support of the Genovese. So, um, yeah, that's quite, um, I think, um, yeah, kind of emotive. The Juve Cup <laughs> final, obviously, as well. There's quite, there is a, there's a lot of history there, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in, in, in terms of the uh, second question, <laughs> which was the um, uh, the goalkeeper, I mean, uh, aside from Buffon and Zoff, I mean, obviously, they're yeah, two of the greats. Um, but for me, um, in terms of pure technical ability and, you know, because of the exposure of watching Italian football in the 90s, um, it would have to be uh, Sebastiano Rossi. Um, I, I just loved watching him. Yeah. Um, such a great goalkeeper. You know, like I say, in terms of sheer technique and, and ability, he was absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, never played for the national team. I think, you know, like quite a lot of Italian players, you know, 
just didn't quite fit in with um, whoever was, you know, whether it was Sat, uh, Rigo Saki or whoever in, in charge at the time, just didn't didn't get in. And for them, you know, five Serie A titles, Champions League, a couple of UEFA Cups, uh, over 300 series, and just incredible, um, you know, career. Yeah, I was going. I was about to say, uh, Richard, you wrote a piece, didn't you, on uh, was something along the lines of the most underappreciated Italian keeper of all time, didn't you? Yeah, it's for in bed with Maradona. Yeah, it was, um, and it was obviously Rossi. I think that with with Rossi, one of the things was that it, it's really tough, and it is just because of the levels uh, of goalkeepers around at that time. You know, I mean, it still baffles me um, of why that he, he didn't get more caps. I mean, a lot of it sometimes can be, oh, I don't know, so you, you sometimes wonder about a player. This, you know, we, we can only see so much uh, of what happens. And, you know, you just wonder if there was issues with various coaches. But then you look at what he won and you look at his performances. And, of course, you know, I mean, if I, I'll quickly flip to, to my... Personally, my goalkeeper would have been Zenga, but that's relevant. And what's Zenga... For me, um, you know, just because of the interlinks, or again, it's probably a little bit biased there. But in that early 90s period, I mean, Zenga was, um, you know, keep, keeping him out. Um, you know, obviously through Italian 90, they didn't make the 92 Euros, but you know, Zenga was an exceptional goalkeeper and, and brought something very different. Um, you know, it's, it's a really difficult argument because with Rossi, I always thought the positioning was excellent. He was so safe. Um, you know, and obviously he's got the, well, until Gigi Buffon broke it, he had the longest uh, clean sheet record. Uh, yeah. And and you could see, and then the article I wrote, it was it was funny because on, what you saw was when Gigi Buffon broke that record, Sebastiano Rossi was on television and he looked so pained, he looked so pale and gutted uh, that his record had gone. And it was just like almost a frustration that, you know, He'd done this, and it was another. Re- he was so clinging to every single record he has, and he and he felt underappreciated. You know, yeah. I always remember after that, after that happened, and Buffon had done the nine hundred and thirty minutes. He turned around and said, "Look, yeah, well, some of the attackers were a lot harder to mark back then." So you know, and he's sort of saying, he's sort of referencing, you know, that he kept that against Klinsmann, Batistuta, Senor Vialli, Espria, Ronaldo, you know, and and all the others. And uh, yeah, it's, it's it's very very. Um, very big shame, but he was a superb goalkeeper, and um, it's a shame, like we said, he didn't get any more. For me, uh, Zenga offered a little bit more, probably a bit more spectacular in some respects. Probably needed to do a little bit more as well. I always think with Rossi, did he because the Milan defense was so good at that time? You know, was he tested as much? Probably not. If you're looking in comparison to Zenga, so you know, came probably more to the forefront. But Walter Zenga for me was just one of those uh, goalkeepers who. He had a bit of attitude about him as well. He just maybe he looked like he always uh, would breed confidence. Um, and yeah, the Spider Man, fantastic. Um, what about you, Luke? What about your keeper? Um, yeah, no, I was just going to kind of add to that in terms of, especially the Rossi point. Look at who he was competing with at the time. Not only Zenga, but Taconi from Juve was another really underrated keeper, I think. Yeah. He was a brilliant keeper for Juve. Um, and then later on, you had Paliuka who came through again, fantastic goalkeeper. Even someone like Luca Marchegiani, who, who served Lazio for, <laughs> it's just seemed like forever. And he mm. retired when he was 40, I think, uh, similar to Buffon. Um, so you had these keepers who, who not only were, were you know, the best around, but they, they, st- they stuck around as well. 
So for someone like Rossi to break into the Italian side, it was that much harder. Um, and it, as in terms of adding other names, I guess, into the mix, I would have to say Peruzzi. Um, Angela Peruzzi was a, a brilliant keeper. Lazio and Juve, I think we've had a couple of pieces. Richard, you wrote a When Coucher Ruled the World piece on him, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so inspired Paul Grech's uh, second, second e-book, um, Il Re Calcio, um, which is worth, we've, we've written a review actually, it's worth uh, worth the read, just short stories about from the Italian game. Um, and he wrote a piece on Peruzzi being somewhat underappreciated. And, and again, Luca Bucci as well, don't know if you mentioned him. Yeah, yeah Palmer, was he Palmer, I think? Yeah, yeah. Displaced um, Pharrell going full circle. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, coming back to the beginning. Um, and, you know, we could go on Toldo. I mean, the performance by Toldo in, in Euro 2000 to get Italy through that um, semi-final against the, the Dutch goes down in history. Uh, so, I mean, the legacy of Italian keeping speaks for itself. I think we've had a couple of pieces on, on you know, just how lucky uh, we've been uh, as Italian football fans in terms of goalkeepers. Um, so, yeah. As we said, that could that could go on, and I think um, we're planning actually off the back of that question to write a, a piece on on the greatest goalkeepers of Italian football, similar to the, the kind of listicles that we've done on um, on the kits and, and on the greatest goal, the greatest goal during the Gazzetta Football Italia era. So be a great debate that. No. But um, yeah, I mean, picking up on the other side of the question on the on the atmospheres, Richard, I think you should finish on this one because you've probably been to the most variety of grounds out of all of us. But for me, um, obviously San Siro and its pomp is something spectacular. Um, nothing quite like it. And also, I haven't been to the Marassi for a derby for the Derby della Lanterna between Genoa and Sam. But I have been to the Marassi for a Sampdoria game. And that is a, a, a lot, an amazing ground to visit. Um, very kind of English in style in terms of how how close the fans are to the pitch and, and almost all the architectural style of it as well. Uh, but in terms of atmosphere, I think that the, the Genovese derby is a must, is an absolute must, uh, perhaps the best in Italy alongside, you know, your Milan derby and your... The derby della capitale has been a, not quite as good in, in recent years because of the boycotts of fans and things like that, but... Certainly, the Genovese derbies would be the, the, the top fixture for me. Yeah, I think. Yeah, it's, it's such a different question. <laughs> They're all it's all for different reasons, isn't it? it? Depends on what you, what you, what you want, what you're going to see. Um, you know, just the Milan derby for me, it does take some beating if you you know you, you get it right and the choreography is really spot on. Uh, that that is pretty much something else. But then. At the stadiums, I think interestingly, it is some of the some of the smaller games that you can have, uh, and it depends on the, the, the Milan derby is pageantry. It is incredible. It is it's something that you know shows off the city, shows off. Even even when I last time I went, I think it was two thousand fifteen, when you know the clubs were in a worse situation than they were now. That atmosphere. Um, and the choreography was almost so overwhelming because it was almost like it felt like a last hurrah uh, for the for the game itself, and and it was it was even spectacular then. So 
that's 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 one that's very close to my heart there. But I don't know if I'm being a little bit biased. Then you know, you touched on a point as well about sometimes the smaller stadiums and the atmospheres there. Um, yeah. you know, one of the, one of my favourites um, was Fiorentina Bologna. Uh, mm. Really, really, really good atmosphere there. Bologna were just absolutely nuts, like nothing I've ever seen. I just it just everything went wrong that day because I hadn't. In fairness, I. I I had proposed the day before in Florence and thought, you know, that's definitely going to be a game in. So the next... The, ne- the authorities and all that. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't just for that reason. But normally, you know, if you know you're going to Derby, you think about the game, you think, oh, OK, that's a bit, that could be a bit raucous. Or, and it's because of obviously I had other priorities on, just didn't even think about any of it. And even outside the stadium, we went the wrong way. And these, these Bologna ultras, and I just remember walking down and they'd had a bit of a scuffle with the police and they'd stolen the police helmets and they were just... That, that didn't look good. And then they, they've moved the fans now where they are, but they're in this sort of almost, um, they put them in this like perspex type, what looked like a perspex box. And it was just, they really couldn't get anywhere. They couldn't, they've just all rammed into this small compartment, uh, this small area of the stadium. And it absolutely hammered it down with rain. And this, <laughs> the water must have been up to their, to their ankles. It was just getting a bit messy and they were throwing fireworks out and everything. But, they were Bologna. I've never seen anything like the Bologna Vultures. That was that was pretty cool. Um, and that's a, and it's a beautiful stadium, the Frankie as well. So that that was yeah. a good atmosphere that day. Um, but other ones, after the Lara, the Bologna Stadium would be a great visit. I think. I they're, think they're right. Yeah, absolutely. I think that could be a really good one to 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 tick off as well. Especially going to Bologna as well, because it's supposed to be absolutely beautiful as well, and especially for food. But yeah, the. Um, sidetracking there but another one that was good which uh, I was really not expecting to uh, to be any good was uh, when Navarra were in Serie A um, I went to see funnily enough Fiorentina there and Navarra Fiorentina and that was so small and so compact uh, and a lot of the time you can tell the is where the atmosphere is but everybody in that stadium seemed up for it even like every, there was a not an aggression but just a, a real ferocity a very passionate crowd that even um you know forget the ultras even the sort of the old men were really on it that day uh shouting lots of abuse and it was quite but it was it wasn't it wasn't a threatening environment it was just really really good so yeah it's, it's difficult because you could go on and on you know the olympico can be good in its day but like you say luca sometimes you know it, it depends on the fixture but then yeah. it, but then again you can say that about san Siro, so yeah, it's true. I think just to finish off and just actually to plug one of the articles we've had recently and one that actually attracts a lot of um, supporters from the UK because of Tim Park's book on Verona uh, was Rick Ho recently wrote an article on, on Verona and a, and a Man City fan who's been travelling over there to support the side. And that article really captures how good the atmosphere can be at the Bentegodi as well to watch Verona. Absolutely. It's a really, really good piece. A really good piece. And um, I think Verona, I'm doing that one next December. And uh, I've, I've seen this. When I was in Verona, it was in the summer last time. And I've seen the stadium, but it's not, not in the best area. But uh, yeah, that, that'll be a... The stadium itself isn't like Neil mentioned earlier in, in the best condition either. No. Um, but Verona is another beautiful city. So another great trip. Absolutely, and we'll have to uh, talk more maybe on the, on those football trips and, and guides around Italy in, in future episodes. But 
Unfortunately, I think we're we've overrun now. We're a little out of time, so I just want to thank you guys for joining me, for, uh, the Gentleman's Podcast, and hopefully I will see you on the third. Um, so I just want to say thank you, Saluka, and thank you to. We shall be back in two weeks' time.